evening. So Isaiah 55, we'll look at the entire chapter. The invitation to new life, the invitation to abundant life, I'll begin reading at verse 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that, uh, be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. It shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord our God, we are thankful that we have life and have it abundantly because of he who is the gate of the sheep. Thank that he is the one who gave his life for his sheep and that in him we have life everlasting. We are thankful that you have led us to the living waters. You have led us to those green pastures, and we ask and pray that we would find rest in you tonight. We know that we are still exiles. We know that we still deal with strife and sorrow in this world, and sometimes it doesn't feel like we have that abundant life, but help us to recognize where that abundant life is, and that is having our sins forgiven. That is having communion with you. That is being and uh, in Christ Jesus by faith. And so may we recognize that tonight. May we know that we have this blessed, abundant life in him. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that they would come, that they would come and believe, that they would come and look to Christ, that they would come and find mercy in him, because we are thankful that in him there truly is life everlasting. We do not see it yet, but we believe it. And we're thankful that it is true and it is sure because your promises never fail. So thank you for the sure mercies of David. Thank you that Jesus is David's greater son. And we are thankful that we are the ones who can drink from that living water who is Christ Jesus. So may we drink tonight. May we feed tonight. We pray that you would feed us tonight and that we would be increased, that we would be encouraged, that we would bear fruit. And we know that we can do so because your word goes forth. So be with us by your spirit. Send forth your spirit. Give us illumination, we pray. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as Isaiah says, or Isaiah implies, a life without God, a life in sin, is a life that really is destitute. It is a life that is impoverished 
uh, because of one's own doing, because of one's own very sins. The sinner who is without Christ is like one who is thirsty, but the problem is they do not know that they are thirsty. They're like one who is hungry, but the problem is they do not know where to find food that satisfies. And certainly this is an apt picture for the people of Israel as they're about to go into captivity, as they're about to go into exile. They're going to be destitute. They're going to have nothing. They're going to thirst and they are going to be hungry. And so thankfully Isaiah prophesies looking ahead to that time and he gives this blessed promise, uh, this blessed invitation to new life, this blessed invitation to life with God. Thankfully, that time of exile will not be without hope because there is a servant or there will be a servant, a just servant, a conquering servant, an obedient servant, and a suffering servant. And it shouldn't surprise us because Isaiah 54 and 55 are what uh, they're called the tailpieces or it's one large tailpiece to that final servant song in Isaiah 53. It is so glorious. It is so blessed. Uh, that Isaiah uses two chapters to describe for us the response to what this suffering servant has done and what he will do for his people. We see what the servant brings and what is offered because of the price that he paid. We see that for us in Isaiah 55. Now, again, it's important for us to understand the historical context. Isaiah was in the 8th century BC. He was prophesying primarily to Judah. And chapters 1 through 39 primarily deal with issues in and around that time period, although uh, there are many prophecies that look past that time period. But when we turn to Isaiah 40 through 55 and 40 through 66, he's looking beyond the 8th century. And so again, Isaiah 40 through 55 presupposes exile. And so as the people of God are going into exile, as the people of God are going to be away from their home, God gives them this message of comfort. God gives them this message of transformation from chapters 40 through 55. And this is where we see those servant songs and that universal blessing is going to come from Zion and it's going to come from Zion's king. It might not look like it to the exiles, but there is that promise that salvation and hope and peace and a blessed king is going to come from the people of Israel. And that key feature in this section are those servant songs. Motir calls it the book of the servant because Israel's hope is in this servant. As Israel goes into captivity, they're going to be looking ahead to this one who is the servant, this one who is going to bring life for a people who are destitute. And so the problem is very clear, a destitute and a dire people. Israel has been destitute or will be destitute because they've forsaken the Lord God. They have not honored him. They have not glorified him. They have not done what he says. So God is going to vomit them out of the land and kick them out of the land by way of Babylon in 586 BC. The whole world is under destitution, namely those who are without Christ. This is what sin brings. It brings poverty. It brings destitution. It brings a life without God. And the implication seems to be a life with God is where life is. Abundant life is what the servant is going to bring. And this is exactly the comfort that Zion needs. It's exactly the comfort that a people who are exiles in the land need to hear. Where is our hope? Where is abundant life? Where does that lie? It lies with this one who is the servant. And so in Isaiah 55, the Lord invites all who thirst to come to the Lord because of the servant's completed work. 
The servant has paid a price, and now there is life that is offered to all those who come and believe upon his name. So what we call the free offer of the gospel, this external call to all to come and believe, but we know that it's the spirit who effectually calls that internal working with the word as it goes forth. And there's one of the clearest passages that we see of this free offer. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You have no money. Come, buy, and eat. And so we'll look at this idea of abundant life, this invitation to abundant life under two headings this evening. First of all, we will see the invitation to abundant life in verses 1 through 7. And then secondly, we'll see the giver of abundant life in verses 8 through 13. So the invitation to abundant life, verses 1 through 7. And then we will see the giver of abundant life in verses 8 through 13. So the invitation and the giver, let's first look at the invitation to abundant life in verses 1 through 7. And he starts off by describing uh, metaphorically what this life is going to look like. Now, again, the context is exile. The people are going to have nothing, and yet here is this prophecy concerning what life looks like. And again, the important theme really is what the servant will do for his people. Now, if I were to ask you and say, where are the servant songs located or what chapters are they? You would all say, if you've been here for any long period of time, 42, 49, 50, and 53. Once again, there's going to be a pop quiz at the end of the service, 42, 49, 50, and 53. And they all highlight something different. The justness of the servant, the conquering servant in 49, the weapon that he uses, namely his word, how he's obedient in Isaiah 50, and then how he suffers and how he succeeds in that suffering, the one who is bruised for our transgressions, the one who has borne our griefs uh, in Isaiah 53. He is the one who brings comfort. He is the one who brings hope. He is the one who go, and now the word has gone forth based upon what he has done, and here is this invitation. Isaiah 54 deals with Zion primarily, using a lot of language from Old Testament history. But then as we see in Isaiah 49, Israel is not enough. And so it spreads out further, not just to Israel, but it spreads not just to the Jew, certainly the Jew first, but also to the Greek as well. The salvation call is for everyone, everyone to come and believe, every single person, every uh, uh, everyone without distinction, whether Jew or Greek. And so we see this invitation, ho, pay attention. If you're sleepy tonight, ho, the Bible says that. Wake up, uh, wake up and listen to what the prophet has to say. Here is this invitation. This servant has purchased something. We've seen his success in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make a soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall divide the spoil with the straw because he poured out his soul. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. For what? That we might come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. There's this invitation to this banquet this banquet of the king. This king has done something and we see something blessed that he offers for undeserving people. And so we see the implication here is there is some need. Thirsty, who's hungry and have no money. But he says, come all who thirst, 
Come all who have no money, come buy and eat. Buy grain, God will give you all you need, but also God will give you abundance. Come buy wine and milk as well. There is this banquet that happens, this marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, of when we, the new heavens and new earth are inaugurated, we shall eat it again with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. But everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. We know that this is found in Christ Jesus. We know that the living waters are found in Christ Jesus, who is the living water, and he is the one we shall drink of forever, world without end. That's why the living waters, the rivers of life, are mentioned in Isaiah, or sorry, Revelation 21 and 22. And it shouldn't surprise us that Isaiah is prophesying concerning that time. Prophesying of that free offer of the gospel, prophesying of Christ and his completed work, but also prophesying about when it is all finished. When Christ comes again and we shall be with him in the new heavens and new earth, that we shall drink of him forever. He is the bread of life. He is the one who is the water, uh, the one who is living, uh, we drink of, who is the living water. And thankfully in him we shall never thirst. Thankfully in him we shall be fully satisfied. And so we come to him. Come, everyone who thirsts, come, buy, and who have no money. Now, we have to understand that nothing in life is free. Our health care is not free. You pay for it in 50% of your taxes, by the way. That's how we pay for our free health care, but it ain't free. And the same thing is true here when it comes to this idea of we don't have to pay, but somebody else paid. Somebody else paid the price. Somebody else suffered in our stead. Somebody else died upon that cross, and that was the servant of Isaiah 53, the one who bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, who is numbered with the transgressors. He is the one who has paid that price that we then can come without money. We can come and without price, and we can receive this free gift. Everyone who thirsts, come. Everyone who has no money, come, buy, and eat. And then in verse 2, he compares it with the life of destitution, namely, What's the abundant life and what's the destitute life? And he's highlighting the difference between life with God in Christ and life with idols. So he says in verse 2, why, why do you spend money for what is not bread? He is pleading with them. Why do, you, uh, why do you find things or spend money on things that do not satisfy and your wages for what does not satisfy? Why do you worship idols that are made with hands? Why do you worship things that shall end. Why do you spend, 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 and are never satisfied? Why do you swipe, swipe, swipe on your phones, see everything everybody else is doing, and are never satisfied? It's because there is only one place where we can be satisfied. Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. There is abundance with God. It doesn't mean we're going to have Rolls Royces. It does not mean we're going to have be rich but what it means is we have abundant life now. Now, again, brethren, that's hard, isn't it? For the exiles, they're walking away. Oh, I have abundant life or it's coming. Yes, you might be thinking that yourself. I, you know, inflation's, you know, running away and there's all these things. Is this a, yes, we have abundant life, but it's not in things. It is in Christ Jesus. That is where our abundant life truly is. That's why in John 10, Jesus says he's the gate of the sheep. And I came for what reason? 
that his sheep might have what? Life and have it abundantly. Not that we're going to have no troubles or be bajillionaires, but that we have life with him. We have life with God and we have everlasting life with him. And he is the one who's paid the price that we might have it with him. Let your soul delight itself in abundance because the new creation is going to be filled with abundance and it is a gift that is given and we partake in part even now. Our life that satisfies is one with God. And so this promise of abundant life continues as he brings it and connects it with the Davidic covenant, verse, verses 3 through 5. Incline your ear and come to me. A lot of inclining, a lot of coming, a lot of come. You know, you know we were not against the idea of coming and believing and incline your ear and listen. Come to me. Here and your soul shall, soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Notice the sure mercies of David. There's going to be a good life under a good king who is the son of David. There's going to be a king and his kingdom, and the king is the one who is inviting you to this banquet. And notice what Isaiah does here in Isaiah 55, 3. He connects the servant with what we see in 42, 49, 50, and 53, and he connects it with the Davidic covenant. And once again, if I were to ask you, where is the Davidic covenant in the Bible? You would all say 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, and Psalm 132. And there's a couple places in Chronicles that I forgot, but those three are perfectly fine for now. But especially Psalm 89, especially verse 3, where he talks about this, how he swore and made a covenant with David. We don't see the swearing in 2 Samuel 7, but it is a covenant. God's promise to David that you shall have a throne. God's promise to David that you shall have a kingdom. And once again, for the exiles, as they are going into captivity, they're like, what happened? Where is the king? Because the kingdom would have been taken away for a while. When they return, they're asking the same question. Where is the king? Where is he? Well, there is going to be fulfillment that comes only in David's greater son. And as we see in Isaiah 9, you know, uh, what his name shall be, what that child shall be. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What is he going to do? Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this very thing. This child is going to bring about the kingdom of David. And thankfully, for those that are in the one who brings about the kingdom of David, God enters into that covenant with us, this new covenant, according to the sure mercies of David. And thankfully, that Davidic covenant isn't just for Jews, is it? <laughs> it also includes Gentiles, Isaiah 4 and 5. Indeed, I have given him this this one, this David, the greater David's greater son, as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. We need such a one. We need such a king who is glorious and good. But surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you. So the Davidic covenant isn't just, it's Christ, it's fulfilled in him, but it's not just for Jews, but it is for all who believe all who look to him, all who come to him by faith shall be brought into this new covenant because of what David's greater son has done. You know how I know this is true? 
because Paul says as much in Acts 13. You can turn there. Acts 13. I also know it's true because of Isaiah 55, but Acts 13. This is during Paul's first missionary journey. He's gone to Antioch in Pisidia. He's traveling through Galatia. They go into the synagogue. They get Paul to preach. And what does Paul preach? He preaches the resurrected Christ. And he preaches the resurrected Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. And we see in verse 33, and 30, uh, verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So Psalm 2. We see it fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And then verse 34, in that he raised him from the dead and no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead that comes only in Christ Jesus, abundant and everlasting life. And even coupling that with Psalm 16. So life, everlasting hope, a the true king is David. And it shouldn't surprise us then that in Acts 13, we see as Paul continues to, to preach, that is the Jews struggle with this. They can't stand this. And so what happens, some believe, but then uh, they struggle with the idea of the Gentiles who wish to hear it. And so what do Paul and Barnabas do? They grow bold and say the, the Jews reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we now what? We turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. And in that, he's quoting Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, which are, as we've said, uh, two of the servant songs. So it's in Jesus. It's in David's greater son. It's in him that we have resurrected life. It's in him we have everlasting life. And for all who come and believe upon him, there is everlasting life. Because the Lord your God, all the way back to Isaiah 55.5, and the Holy One of Israel, he has glorified you. It's what God has done. It's what God has brought about. And thankfully, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is God. This is the life that he has given, a king, a kingdom, an abundant life found in him. But notice in verses 6 through 7, he describes here what coming looks like. What does it mean when one should come to the Lord? Come to him. Come and buy without money. Verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. If you're an unbeliever here today and you have breath, the Lord is going to come again and judge the living and the dead. You might pass away tomorrow or tonight or whoever, who knows. But if you do not close with Christ and believe upon him by faith, you shall die in your trespasses and sins. What does it mean? Come to the Lord. Seek the Lord. Come to him while he may be found. Believe upon him. He goes on to further describe what this means in verse 7. Forsake your ways. Forsake your wicked ways. Turn from your sins and your idols to the true and living God. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. Look to the Lord by faith. And notice what the Lord will do. He will have mercy on him. There is kindness with the Lord. If you believe upon him, there is mercy and forgiveness. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And to our God, come to our God. And what will he do? He will abundantly pardon 
The implication seems to be that there is an expiry date of this free offer. And if you let it pass, if you pass without believing, you will die in your trespasses and sins. So forsake, turn from your ways. Here is a just and merciful God. And the reason God can pardon and does pardon is because of the servant in Isaiah 53, who was the one who was numbered among the transgressors. Looking to the Lord in faith is where abundant life lies. Having your sins forgiven and taken away is where abundant life lies. Having spiritual blessings in the heavenly places is where abundant life lies. Not physical. Not physical blessings. The Lord is pleased to help us and provide for us, but ultimately our abundant life is found with God and the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. This is what he's calling sinners to. Here's a blessed life. Why wouldn't you believe and look to Christ? Why wouldn't you come to him? There is life with God. Now, all of this, I think, teaches us about the life that is offered. What, again, we call this free offer of the gospel. Now, again, it's that, it's that external call, believe on Christ, but we believe the internal call, the spirit works with the word to give new hearts, to call out of darkness into marvelous light. Reformed folks are not against evangelism, though we believe in predestination. Do you always feel like you have to explain yourselves to people when you say that? They're like, don't you believe in predestination? Yes, I do. Then why are you all about evangelism? Because God has called us to preach that gospel. God has called us to call sinners. We do not know who the elect are. They're not walking around with a sign on the top of their forehead saying elect or not elect. God is the one who draws them in through the preaching of the blessed gospel. I always feel like we have to explain ourselves, dear brethren. We ought not to. Come, believe everyone. Come and believe upon Christ. Come look to him. I've got no issues saying that. No problems whatsoever. But it's almost like we have to sound holy sometimes. Like we have to explain it all the time. It's like people who say, you know, I love my wife, but not as much as God. Can't you just say you love your wife without saying not as much as God all the time? Brethren, it's perfectly okay for a Calvinist to go come and believe, but also believe that Christ, that God is the one who foreordains whom he will save, chooses whom he will save, and the call is for sinners to look to Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, seek the Lord while he may be found. Look to him, believe upon him, you shall have life in him. And if you are a believer, here is the life that you receive in Christ Jesus. This is what he has done for you. And this is what he's given to you. This is what we have in him now. And that should give us comfort because we are exiles. Again, we all struggle, right? I struggle. I assume other people struggle when we see everything going on in the world and we have our own sins and remaining corruption and we're called exiles for a reason. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we have abundant life. And so what's the reminder we need to hear? that Christ Jesus has given us abundant life. And the life everlasting that awaits uh, cannot be compared now. The sufferings that we endure now do not compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits God's people. That's why we have this hope. That's why we are pressing on. That's why we are walking to that celestial city. That's why we are running that race with Christ Jesus, looking to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. We have abundant life. We have it now and we shall have it in full when Christ comes again. But this is the blessed life that is offered. We believe in the free offer of the gospel, and thankfully God is pleased to work with the Spirit to save sinners, as many are invited to come 
and partake. So that is the invitation to abundant life. Let's then look secondly at the giver of abundant life in verses 9 through 13. Sorry, verses 8 through 13. The giver of abundant life. Notice, talking about all that God will do this call, but notice the reasons for why we ought to come to him and the reasons uh, for why he gives this life. In verses 8 and 9, God is not us and we are not God. It's better to say we're not God, but verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, then your thoughts. What he's talking about here is the immensity of the Lord's mercy. When he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth. How high are the heavens? Is what you would then ask. They are uncontainable. They are immense. And so we see that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Now, there is a narrow focus here. And the purpose of what Isaiah is trying to do is to instill humility in us, to recognize that the divine mind is far greater than our minds, especially when it comes primarily to God's goodness and mercy and love. When he's talking about my thoughts are not your thoughts, he's not necessarily talking about God's providence here, although we certainly believe in God's providence and the unfolding of it. But the main thing here is how merciful God is. Man is not merciful. Man is not caring as much as governments would like to say they are, as much as the media would like to say that they are. Is man loving? Is man Are you loving? <laughs> are you caring? Probably not as much as you think you are. And so when we consider God and his infinite love and we consider Christ and what he has done and how we see in Christ what that love is, God's love really is ineffable, isn't it? God's mercy is really inexplainable because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Why would anyone suffer and die for wretches like you and I? We sinned against God. We trampled on the goodness of God. We broke the, the covenant. We broke the law of God. God gave us good things, and yet we spit in his face, and yet here is abundant life in Christ. And the one who paid that price, the suffering servant who stood in the stead of his people, the one who was innocent, who is that perfect lamb, that lamb without spot or wrinkle, and he is the one who bears the judgment of God upon himself for his people. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And so God's gracious plan, God's goodness, God's love is seen in verses 8 and 9, but notice we see God's word is effective in verses 10 and 11. He compares it with the rain and the snow. For as the rain comes down on the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, and it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. What does the rain do? Brings life to that which is destitute. It transforms that which is dead and makes it lush. Again, there's this creation language on purpose here because he's prophesying concerning that messianic new creation. Again, the new creation, the refreshing that comes in Christ who has come 
and also will bring it in full in the new heavens and new earth when Christ comes again. This present world shall pass away. But in the meantime, his word goes forth and is effective. His word goes forth. The word is sent. The word goes out to the ends of the earth, and the word has come and dwelt among his people. That's why Kostenberger connects it with John 1. More conceptually, not so much the, the words. I looked at the words. They're not quite uh, the same, but certainly conceptually. When John speaks about the word who's been sent and the son who's been sent, what we see here again, the word that has been sent but it shall accomplish, it shall go forth and not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God reveals, the word of God brought life. He spoke and he brought life uh, into this, uh, brought life, he made life as he spoke. He restores, he refreshes, and thankfully the word of the Lord is Christ, and Christ himself reveals that saving plan of God in its fullness, Christ is that mystery fulfilled, and Christ is the one who will bring his people in. Christ really will save his people, won't he? I really do believe that all the elect for whom Christ died, he will bring them in. Again, I don't know who they are when we're walking along the street, but I do believe God will save all of his people. And as he tarries, and as we await his return, we don't know when he is going to return, but the one thing can be sure is when that last elect person is saved, the new heavens and new earth shall come in. Pastor Butler has said, I have said many uh, as well, wouldn't that be great to be the last guy? All of a sudden you're saved, boom, <laughs> new heavens and new earth. There it is, here comes Christ out of the heavens and we're all caught up with him to be that last guy. But as God waits, as Christ tarries, it is the salvation of the elect and his people. He brings life and even now, as the word goes forth, he does what? He, he brings life. He nourishes our life. He gives us the strength and gives us aid. And as we hear his word, it gives us hope and causes us to have hope and cause us to have life, as the psalm says, psalmist says in Psalm 119. But Christ is the eternal word who brings life and brings that new creation. The word goes forth. Christ still speaks. And the word goes forth and shall not return void. So there's the plan of God, there's the outworking of the plan of God, then we also see the response to the plan of God and the outworking of it in verses 12 and 13. We see praise, praise in the new world, praise for people returning from captivity. You kind of sense that with that language, for you shall go out with joy. A people who once had to go into captivity with sadness and sorrow, they shall come out with joy, this new relationship, this new life, this new everything, emotions, relationship, guardianship, be led out with peace. Here is the shepherd leading his people to the, the green pastures, to the living waters, which is what we see in Revelation chapter 7. They shall go forth, and as they're coming over the hills, the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing, because why? The people are singing. The people are singing praises to God most high for what he has done. So you hear this march of the people returning from captivity as they're shouting the praises of the Lord and the mountains are singing to the Lord as well. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Creation is rejoicing. Creation groans now, Romans 8. But creation shall rejoice at that redemption when everything is made new, when the things that are dead have passed away and those things that have life in Christ shall be forever. 
And notice it's blessing instead of cursing, verse 13. Instead of the thorn, drawing our attention back to Genesis 3, drawing our attention to the fact that Adam would have to work and there would be thorns and thistles, but instead of thorns, there shall be that cypress tree, that refreshment. We saw that cypress tree. We saw thorns in Hosea 14. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. There shall be lushness. There shall be blessing. There shall be refreshing. And it shall be forever. It shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This old creation is passing away, but the new shall be forever. And everyone who comes, everyone who believes upon him shall not pass away. God has given us that assurance for an everlasting sign that this creation shall not be cut off again. And all those who are in Christ as new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation, they shall not be cut off. Henry says, their journey home over the mountains shall be pleasant. They shall have the goodwill and good wishes of all the countries they pass through. The hills and their inhabitants shall, as in transport of joy, break forth into singing. And if the people should altogether hold their peace, even the trees of the field would attend them with their applause and acclamations. And when they come to their own land, it shall be ready to bid them welcome. For whereas they expected to find it all overgrown with briars and thorns, it shall be set with fir trees and myrtle trees. For though it lay desolate and yet enjoyed its Sabbaths, which, when they were over, like the land after the sabbatical year, it was the better for. And this shall redound much the honor of God and be to him for a name. This is what God has done in Christ and what he is going to do for all of his people because of what Christ has done. We see this transforming work that the word has brought, the transforming work of God to bring new life for an undeserving people. And so that word still transforms, that word still saves sinners, that word still strengthens saints, that we who are the people of God might come and worship him as that new creation. Brethren, we ought to have joy in Christ. I know I don't always smile. I've been told I have one face for four emotions. This is my happy face. This is my grumpy face. This is my I'm encouraged and excited face. But, you know, brethren, we ought to have joy in Christ Jesus. I try to smile, actively smile for that very reason, because we should have joy in Christ for what he has done, what he has brought us. And certainly he does say in John 7:37, he talks about how he truly is the living water. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his water will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And we know that as he has now been glorified, that spirit has now been poured out. And we as a people ought to have joy. And as we have joy, we ought to then what? Praise God's name. And I do think Romans 11.33 does allude back to how his ways are not our ways. In Romans 11.33-36, this benediction, this doxology at the end of the main body of the book of Romans... Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? You know what those verses quote? Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 starts the section that ends with Isaiah 55. As the people go into captivity, this comfort, but God's ways are glorious. Who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. What is our response, brethren, to God's goodness? Certainly it's to believe upon him. If you're not in Christ, believe upon him. But if you have believed upon him, what ought you to do? Praise his name. Praise his name with joy. Praise his name with trembling, for this is where abundant life truly lies. Motir says, the new Exodus community of joy and peace and the exultant transformed creation will themselves speak in revelation of the nature and character of the Lord, his free invitation, his call to the simplicity of repentance, his guarantee of compassion and forgiveness, the certainty of his ways, the power of his word, the move from alienation to fellowship, from death to life, from the old into the new, from the transient into the eternal, from need to fullness, such is the Lord and such what his servant has done so that we can say and we can offer ho everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you have no money come buy and eat well let us pray dear heavenly father we are thankful for the abundant life that we have in christ because of what he has done and so often it's hard for us to grasp what this is but we know as the New Testament says, that the inheritance that we have is unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places. And so may we confess that, may we believe that. And as we read about these prophecies concerning Christ and his finished work, and also not just uh, the first coming of Christ, but also his second coming and what that means, may we rejoice, may we give you praise, may we recognize that your ways are greater than our ways, that your thoughts are not our thoughts, and that you are a God who is merciful and kind and gracious, and that in you we can come. We are thirsty, uh, we are hungry, and we can come, and we have purchased without money. We have no money, but Christ is the one who paid that price for us, and so we're thankful that we can come and have it freely. And we pray for any here today who do not know you, please, may they come. May you work in them by your spirit and give them new heart that they would come and that they would believe on Christ, that they would seek the Lord while he may be found. And for all those that have believed upon Christ, we pray that we would be a people who are great, uh, grateful for what you've done, thankful for your kindness towards us, recognize the new creation uh, that we are now in Christ, but also the, the abundant life that we have in Christ even if our lives seem destitute in this present world, help us to be reminded that you love us and you care for us and that we have abundant life with you even now. So thank you for all that you do. Give us the strength and encouragement that we need to go into the world. Help us to know who we are in Christ. Help us to know what we have in Christ. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.